Hello, and welcome to Her Head in Films. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. Now, I'm doing something a little bit different with this episode. I want to explore a television show, and I'm experimenting, and I'm not sure how this will go, or where it will go, or what the reaction to it will be, but I've been watching Sharp Objects. And there's only two episodes so far, and this episode's going to talk about the first and second episodes of the series. It's a limited series that's airing on HBO right now. And it, you know, one episode comes out each week, and I just, I didn't have any plans to talk about the show, and then I started watching it. I've been watching it with my mom, and it just draws you in, and it's drawn me in. And even though on this podcast I usually talk about films, I do have one episode where I talked about Big Little Lies, The Keepers, and Broad Church. So that was an episode where I did explore television. I haven't done any other episodes since then. And this show just has so much in it and so much that I'd like to talk about that I realized that all I want to do is talk about it, but I don't have a forum to talk about it, and I don't have anybody to talk to about this television show, and so why not use the podcast as a platform to explore this show and to talk about why it is haunting me so much and why I find it so incredibly compelling. And I don't usually get into a lot of television. I'm really out of step with the times you know I haven't watched a lot of the big uh, shows the the, you know the ones with the huge fandoms like Westworld and Game of Thrones and um, Twin Peaks was another really big one right I, I don't watch those shows I don't really keep up with television every now and then I'll binge watch stuff I did really love Big Little Lies And Sharp Objects is by the same director, Jean-Marc Vallée. So there's a little bit of similarities there, but not a whole lot. These are two very different shows. But what compels me so much about Sharp Objects is the protagonist, the main character in the series so far, Camille Preaker, who's played by Amy Adams. So... I don't have any kind of set notes or set format for this. I'm really going into uncharted territory for myself as a podcast, but I hope that you'll stick with me and we'll just sort of explore this together. I don't feel as confident talking about television shows as I do when it comes to films, especially art house cinema. That to me is like my specialty and it's my strength. And I feel a little bit more insecure when I'm talking about television. Because it's it's much more in-depth when you're watching a television show. A film might be an hour or two. But over the course of a television show, you can watch 8, 10, however many hours. So there's a lot more plot. There's a lot more characters. There's just a lot more going on in a television show. Which is why I think I've sort of stayed away from it. But I'm just feeling a lot of things about Sharp Objects. And any of you who are maybe listening to this episode and you haven't listened to the podcast before, 
I talk in a really personal way. And that's what Her Head in Films is about. It's about my personal experience with cinema. But I want to try to bring that intimacy and that personal dimension to my discussion of sharp objects as well. So as I said, our protagonist is Camille Preaker. And I will give away spoilers. This is sort of like... I don't know, it's sort of a fusion between like a recap episode and sort of a review and just an exploration for me of what makes the show so compelling and why I'm thinking about it and and things like that. So Camille Preaker's our protagonist and she is a journalist. She's a newspaper journalist reporter based in St. Louis and her boss wants her to return to her hometown Um, Wind Gap, Missouri. And Camille is really, she's worried about it. And she's not totally wanting to go back. Because she obviously has a really complicated relationship with her family, with her mother in particular. When she was um, a child, her younger sister died. Um, And that is something that continues to haunt her. And the reason that her boss wants her to go back to Wingat, Missouri is because one girl, a girl named Natalie Keene, has gone missing. And another girl named Ann Nash has been murdered. So in this little town in Missouri, two young girls have been uh, murdered. I mean, obviously, Natalie Keene, her body is found later on in the episode. Uh, But we assume that she's dead, you know, that these disappearances are probably linked together. And Sharp Objects follows in a long line of shows in the last few years that have been really concerned with crime and and with um, mystery. And it's really become a big thing. Um, You know, the serial podcast got people much more interested in true crime and there's been a lot of true crime, and there's been a huge resurgence in, of interest in that. And so Sharp Objects, in a way, fits into that a bit. This is really a show about a crime, about the disappearance and the murders of these young women. Um, and it's a mystery, because we don't know who has killed these girls. And a lot of people have written about the complexity or or I don't, I can't find the word, maybe the problematic aspect of our culture being so obsessed with dead white girls, you know, that there is something about when we hear that a beautiful young woman has been killed, that we are immediately interested in that, and we are obsessed with dead white women, and um, we have this cultural obsession with it, and how problematic that can be, and I think it certainly can. I I grapple with my own obsession with true crime, my own obsession with stories about crime and mystery. But for me, even though I grapple with it and I have sort of conflict with it, at the same time, I do feel like stories about crime, stories about violence against women do serve an important purpose. And I do think that they can be important in telling the stories of women, and in making visible the violence that happens against women. I don't know if every true crime show or every mystery show necessarily brings out the cultural 
aspect of it or the the sexism and the misogyny that is at the heart of of the murder of women because you know the overwhelming majority of the time when women are murdered it's by men and it's by men that they know whether it's their boyfriends or their husbands or just a random man that they rejected or that they didn't want to have sex with or that they didn't want a relationship with it is often it they often know the men that kill them and that's what's so heartbreaking about it and so i think when you tell those stories you have to tell the story of domestic violence in the process and you have to tell the story of the violence that women go through and that they experience in life so this show sharp objects is about violence against women obviously but also the conflicts between women and we see that in the this is really a show about a mother-daughter relationship about camille and her mother adora and so camille goes back to wind gap to cover this story about the disappearance and the murder of these girls but really it's about camille going back into her past trying to face her past past her boss, in fact, is doing a lot of this to force her to face her past because she is recently out of a psychiatric hospital. Um, at the end of the episode, we see that she has scars on her body, that she is someone who is engages in cutting. Camille is so compelling to me <clears throat> because I am drawn to female characters who are haunted, who are wounded, who are unruly and messy and maybe out of control in some ways because Camille is very out of control. She wears all black. Um, and I love how in this first episode, she like basically has the same clothes on for days. I don't know if anybody else, you know, uh, noticed that but I thought that was really interesting like she hasn't really bathed she's just in these same same clothes she drinks vodka like it's water so she's she's a cutter and she's also an alcoholic you know she drinks vodka constantly she's always drinking she is just a woman on the edge a woman who is very wounded and haunted and that's something that I can relate to. I mean, I'm not a cutter. I've never cut myself. I'm not an alcoholic, but I struggle with mental illness the way Camille does. And I struggle with being haunted by the past. And I'm just someone who really struggles to live and to survive. And I see that in Camille. I see a woman who on the outside is sort of barely keeping it together. You know, Amy Adams, no matter what, no matter how much she tries to make herself ugly or whatever, Amy Adams is still always beautiful, right? Her hair is just like something out of a pre-Raphaelite painting in this show. Um, I, I absolutely love her hair in this show. I can't describe to you. It's like perfectly, the waves are just so perfect and long and beautiful. So even when Amy Adams tries to be ugly, it just doesn't work. But she brings such a rawness and a vulnerability, but also a ferocity. I would never want to act like Camille is not very powerful because I think it takes a lot for her to go back to Wind Gap. Um, 
I think it takes a tremendous amount of strength for her to go back there. And and when she goes to see her mother for the first time, her mother lives in this huge sort of, I don't know if you'd call it a mansion, but it's a huge house. She obviously has money in this town where there's not a lot of money. This is a town that's, I think they say it's known for like slaughtering hogs and stuff. This is like working class rural America here there in Missouri. And yet her mother has a lot of money and her mother is very obsessed with appearances and the way things look. And as soon as, as soon as Camille's there, she's like, she says something like the house isn't clean. It isn't, you know, ready for visitors. And it's like, why would Camille care? But it's, and throughout the show, Adora played by Patricia Clarkson, it's all about um, image. It's about the way things look. Like, she gets really upset later in the episode. She gets mad at Camille that um, that she slept in the car. Because Camille goes to a local bar and she drinks too much. And instead of driving, she um, she just goes to sleep in the car. And and Adora is terrified that, that people have seen Camille do that. And that it's just so low class, I guess. Or it doesn't look good. And she talks about how, you know, even when Camille leaves, whatever Camille does when she's there, Adora has to live with it. She has to live with whatever the neighbors say. And so there's this sense of like gossip, I guess, going around the small town. And um, I live in rural America. And so a lot of this resonated with me. I live in the rural South, as you can probably tell from my accent. And, um... So I understood that as well. But this is, we don't quite know why Adora and Camille have this relationship, but it seems to be connected to the death of um, Camille's younger sister when they were little. And um, I think Adora was obviously shattered by that death and, and by that loss. And so this show is also looking at grief and loss. And that's something that I really relate to. Um, Because I lost my father in 2006 when I was 16 years old. And it was the most devastating experience of my life. And it exacerbated my depression, my anxiety, the mental illness that I already struggled with at that age. But it made it even worse. And even though it's been 12 years... I'm someone who is marked and scarred by that experience. And it just brought so much pain into my life that I've never been able to recover from. I I survive. That's the way that I live. And so that's why I'm compelled by characters like Camille, by women who are haunted and wounded and who struggle, you know. And I love this character of Camille um, from what she wears to, I also love, um, she always has the earbuds in her ears. She's always listening to music. I liked the music in the first um, episode and the second episode. And if you go on Spotify and put in sharp objects, you can definitely find a playlist of the music. There's Led Zeppelin, there's Sylvan Esso, which I really like, um... There's a lot of really 
good music because I'm sort of the same way. I'm always listening to music and I like the way that that was woven into the series. I mean, I think sometimes it can be overdone. At least it was in Big Little Laws. As much as I loved Big Little Laws, and in my episode about it, I just rave about it because I just thought it was an, an exceptional show. And I'm curious to see how season two will go. And maybe if these if these television episodes that I'm doing about sharp objects, if I feel like I'm doing a decent job at them and if they get a good response from those of you who listen, then maybe I could do something similar with Big Little Lies once that season airs. But um, at times, as much as I loved Big Little Lies, the music was just constant. It almost, to me, the show at times turned into a music video. And that's when I felt like there was too much music. So far with Sharp Objects, I don't feel like the music has been overwhelming. Like, I still think it's pretty believable because they'll show Camille laying in her bathtub listening to music or in her car listening to music. And for me, that's much more believable, you know, that um, that she would listen to music at those times. So there's just something very real and fleshed out about Camille as a character for me. And obviously that's a product of Amy Adams and what she's able to do. She's someone who's been nominated for Oscars multiple times. She hasn't won yet. I'm not someone who puts a lot of um, weight on the Oscars. I think there was a time in the past when it did kind of indicate quality. I mean, if you look back on some of the Oscar winners, the films that won, even like the foreign language films, for instance, you will see a lot of classics that won. And I do think that it, it was able to maybe capture that. But I would say in the 21st century... I don't think so. I really don't think that the films that win for best picture or the people that win for best actress or actor, I really don't think it is an indication of greatness personally. And in the last few years, I have really turned away from the Oscars. I used to love watching it when I was younger, but as my taste in film has changed and expanded, I'm just not interested in those in those things. I'm really not. I'm not interested in the people who win it, or the films that get that get focused on personally, and I don't really pay a lot of attention to it. So, it's it's just been a gradual sort of divorce from the Oscars. Um, so I don't put a lot of weight on it. I'm not saying it's not important. It's it's definitely important. It it. It leads to a lot of opportunities for the people who do win. And I absolutely support, you know, the Oscars So White hashtag that's trying to diversify the nominees and the winners. I totally agree with that. But for me personally, it's not something that I want to put a lot of my time and energy into. But hey, if Amy Adams wins one day, I'm totally okay with that. I think she's a really fascinating actress. And I've loved her in so many things from her very early film like Junebug, something like Junebug, which I I really enjoy, to, you know, something like Julie and Julia that she did with Meryl Streep, or Doubt, which she also did with Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and then um, 
and now what she's doing with sharp objects. I think in the last few years, I think she's made some really smart decisions with her career and the kinds of roles that she's taken. But I just, I don't think that we have seen her the way we've, we're seeing her in sharp objects. To me, this role could really signal a different direction in her career. Like, I mean, she already had a great career where she was working with really important directors and stuff. But I think with Sharp Objects, she is really showing what she's capable of. And she brings such a a rawness and um, an authenticity to the character of Camille and makes her very real to us. Something else that I wanted to talk about with the show, and as you might notice, I'm not going into a lot of plot points. That's, to me, to me, this show is not as much about the plot. It doesn't unfold the way your traditional crime series does. It's much more elliptical. It's much more abstract at times. Um, I was thinking about that today after I watched the second episode, Um, and I'll talk about that second episode in a moment. Like we have, it's not like we have a bunch of like suspects, you know, um, we're not really getting much of a procedural with this so far. We do see some of the investigators and Camille, obviously, as she's trying to report her story, um, she talks to the different investigators who are looking into the case. Once one is played by Chris Messina, who I really love personally, me and my mom just sort of drool over him. I think he's so cute. (laughs) Um, and it's really interesting to note that Amy Adams, um, actually did a film with him. She did Julie and Julia with Chris Messina. They played a couple, right? As some of you may remember, um, And so it's cool to see them back together for Sharp Objects. I think he's a really good actor. And I just think he's very attractive. (laughs) Something else that I kind of like with talking about these television shows. I like that I can kind of maybe share my personality a little bit more. I can be a little bit sillier. You know, when I'm talking about the art house cinema and I'm talking about an Ingmar Bergman film or, or something like that, I don't always know if... My personality can come out quite as much, but I have a crush on Chris Messina, so I'm glad I could talk about that in an episode. (laughs) So we see the investigators, but it's, this is not, this is not an episode of Law and Order. This is not 48 Hours, and as much as I love those shows, I watch 48 Hours obsessively. I'm obsessed with true crime. I watch true crime shows constantly. I recently binged The Staircase on Netflix. I watch everything when it comes to true crime. Like, really. I listen to true crime podcasts. I am not against, you know, um, sort of your traditional, uh, let's try to solve this crime and who are the suspects and what's the motive and all of that. And I'll watch reruns of Law and Order. Absolutely. That's not what Sharp Objects is. It's for me, it's it's not even really about the disappearance of these girls. It's maybe we're getting to that point, and I should say that I haven't read the book, so I don't I can't give you the ways in which the book is different from the series because I haven't read the book. Um, I don't know where this story is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I'm I'm right where you are, really. We don't know right now. Um, 
but I'm interested to see what happens and it may start focusing more on the crimes and the suspects and the motive and who might have done it but for now it's really about Camille you know and it's about um, her life and her relationship with her mother and the crimes and the disappearance and the murder of these girls is is sort of secondary to that it's about this this woman um who is haunted who is struggling um and it's about her having to face her past having to go back to a place that really harmed and destroyed her that there is that feeling in the series for me that her relationship with her mother Adora and the house that she grew up in and the family that she grew up in absolutely wounded and damaged her and that she is trying to live with the fallout of that and and the aftermath and that it may have caused a lot of the issues that she continues to deal with um the most compelling thing for me about this series bar none personally is the way that it fuses the past and the present how it shows us that the past is always present that there is no demarcation between the two of them that we are always reliving our memories haunted by our memories places trigger memories and there is something very destabilizing dizzyingly destabilizing about the show in that at times we're not sure if we're in the past or we're in the present they're always being melded together there's this overlap you know I don't know if any of you will understand this comparison but I remember when I used to be in school like high school middle school and there was something called transparencies and it was like this machine and the um and it was like a projector and there would be this screen in in the classroom and the teacher would take out this clear piece of paper it's not paper it's just like a clear piece of plastic she'd take a marker and she would write things on it and then the projector would put that up on the screen so say she was doing a math problem we would see her doing the math problem right Well, to me, the past is almost like this transparency, this piece of plastic transparency that you put over the present, you know, that maybe there's something on that transparency. You know, there's whatever happened in the past or whatever. This is like a terrible comparison or metaphor. And then it and then it overlaps with the present. Like for me, the past is always vivid. It's almost more real than the present really and what is the present is there a present I don't know we're always living time is always moving forward we're never frozen in one place but the past is never over you know it just isn't and um I think for some of us it's more vivid and more real and in sharp objects I'm absolutely amazed by their ability to show the way Camille experiences the world. That's, I think, what is, I don't know, I think that's what's also gotten under my skin about this show is, 
is it's so much about Camille's subjectivity. It's so much about her interior life. And so she can see herself when she was 16. And we see the actress that plays Amy, Amy Adams that plays Camille. We see her with her friend out. Um, what is it? Uh, they're skating or something like that. Um, at times things will just come back from the past and she'll see a person in her bedroom or she'll see herself, um, in the woods, you know, like the, the past and the present are just always overlapping. They're always colliding with each other and living together. That's the thing I think about being human and part of the human condition is the way that the past and the present have to live together in close quarters within our mind, within our brain, that who we are right now is always living with who we were years and years ago. And I was just thinking today about how I don't, sometimes I don't recognize myself, you know, that who I am right now is so different from who I was five years ago, three years ago, 10 years ago, that often I don't know who I am anymore. And I feel so lost. And I feel like such a mess. Um, I don't know how to get it together. You know, I feel like I'm just this constant walking disaster. But I feel like to some extent, I, I am capable of hiding it. That I don't stand in the middle of the street and scream my lungs out the way I want to. You know, I don't, you know, just go crazy and, and, and lose it and, and show all of that. It's just all inside the fear and the pain and the damage and, and, um, the brokenness, all of that is contained within my mind and it's just too much. And around the time I think that Sharp Objects started, I was really suicidal almost. I mean, I don't know how to explain it to you, but as I've got, as I'm getting older, I'm about to turn 29 years old. I feel like I'm having these depressive episodes that are intensifying and I don't know what to do about them, that they're getting worse and worse and worse. You know, I go through periods where I don't want to be alive. I don't want to be here and I have racing thoughts and I can't get my mind to calm down. I can't focus. I can't concentrate on things. There's just so much that's going on within my head. And these feelings of self-hatred and worthlessness. And just feeling like I'm nothing. That I have no value as a person. That the world would be better without me. That I'm just a burden to others. That I have nothing to offer and nothing to contribute. I have no original thoughts. And I've done nothing with my life. And that my life is just a waste. And I'm a waste. And you know. These are the things that go through my mind. And so much more. Like the past comes back to me. And I think about my father. And I think about what happened to him and what happened to me and what happened to my life. I think about everything I've lost, everything that's irretrievable. I think about everything that has wounded and scarred and devastated me. And um, everything I've lost, everything that's been taken away. And I can't cope with it, you know. 
And I just feel like my mind sometimes is just disintegrating. And I can't stop it. And I don't know what to do. I feel so helpless and so out of control. And, um, but I don't have health insurance. And so even if I wanted to see a therapist or I wanted to get some kind of treatment or some kind of help, that's really not possible for me here in the United States. If you don't have insurance, you're just shit out of luck, as we like to say. So it's not easy to have mental illness, to have depression, to have anxiety, and then to not have any way to deal with it and to not have any access to any kind of help for it. So when these episodes happen, and and the most recent one was incredibly intense, and I would say it hasn't fully passed, that there's still a residue of it inside of me right now, that maybe that residue is always there, that it never fully goes away. I wouldn't say that I feel like a happy person. I never feel happy. I never feel at peace. I never feel okay. I always feel like there's something wrong with me. I I can't explain it. I can't put it into words. It's beyond my control, you know. That's why I get so frustrated with the way we talk about mental illness and depression. And maybe sharp objects is even more important because of that, is that maybe we need more representations of it for people. You know, that, that people need to see, like, this is what it does to you. This is what it does to a woman. This is the way that you can be destroyed and damaged and broken and out of control, you know. It's not as easy as take a walk or go exercise or go hang out somewhere or go talk to someone. Those are band-aids. Those are not things. And I don't even understand depression. I'm I'm not some, you know, uh, well-read person about the subject. But it's complicated. And it is ferocious and it is not a choice. It is not something that people choose and it is not the person's fault who has it. And it's not simple. It's not just go exercise and do yoga and eat different, you know, or go talk to somebody. That's, it's just not that simple to get rid of it. You know what I mean? There is no getting rid of it. It's part of you, and it's not something that you have power over. What I try to do is just tell myself that it's temporary, that it'll pass, even though I don't know if I believe that anymore. And I just try to get through it. I can't explain how I get through it. But the last one recently was really scary for me. It was just, it was frightening. To feel these things going on inside my mind. To know that something was wrong. And to not have any kind of relief from it. And to to feel so helpless. And to not know what to do. And to have nobody. You know, I'm very alone for the most part. I have my mom. (laughs) I don't have a support system. I don't have friends and family to come help me. But... I've also realized that even if I did, it wouldn't make much of a difference. Even if I had tons of friends and even if I was some successful person doing great in the world, this this would still be part of me. This would still happen to a certain extent. It doesn't mean that certain circumstances can't worsen it. 
My father's death obviously made my depression and anxiety much, much worse. And I had agoraphobia. I still have, I still have agoraphobia to a certain extent. It's definitely still in me and it, it gets exacerbated by certain experiences and, and it gets worse at certain times in my life. Um, but this is something that has been part of me since I was a child and so I see that in Camille too, that she is someone who obviously had a difficult childhood and she has turned to cutting herself, to self-harm, to alcohol, to lots of different coping mechanisms and different ways to medicate herself and to survive, you know, and I, I, that really resonates with me and I relate to that in a lot of ways but the show makes her trauma very real to us by always having the past within the present. That the present is almost this container that holds the past. And I know my metaphors and comparisons are terrible. It's like I don't know how to describe it. But I think the show does what you can't describe, right? That is the power of the visual medium. That is the power of cinema, I think, and of television now. Because I think television is just more and more getting so good. And you can see that in these projects that are coming out. Like Big Little Lies, like Sharp Objects, you know. Like The Keepers, which is on Netflix. Um, That's a documentary, but still. Um, We see these shows... They're able to take the time to take all these hours, you know, because with a, with a movie, you only get an hour or two for the most part, but with a series, you can go so much deeper. You can take those hours and, and really create this other world that immerses people and you can go really deep into these issues. And that's what the show does for me is that it absolutely shows some of the root of Camille's pain Um, We don't know the full extent of it yet. We don't know the full extent of her relationship with her mother. It comes out a bit in the second episode called Dirt. The first episode was called Vanish. Um, In Dirt, the second episode, we see a little bit more of the dynamics between Camille and Adora. We see, again, how Adora is so obsessed with images and the way things look. And we see her disappointment in Camille because she says that at one time that she wasn't able to help Camille and um, she's obviously ashamed of her to some extent you know Um, we're just not quite sure what happened there but we do see Adora um, going through her grief that these girls disappearing and being murdered brings up her own loss because she lost her daughter um, when Camille was younger and so we see that. We see Adora. I think at one time she's in the old bedroom of the daughter and she's like holding something and crying. So we see the damage that, that grief has done, that loss has done to this family and the impact that it obviously had on the relationship between Adora and Camille. This whole second episode is really about grief and what it can do to people. The... The main focus of the second episode is the funeral for Natalie Keene, 
And so Camille goes to the funeral and she's watching people. And, um, and again, with this second episode, we really don't have that many suspects. We're really not sure who could have done it. Um, you know, there's gossip around town about different people, but again, I think the show sort of subverts this idea of what a crime show or a mystery show should be, that it's it's supposed to be about solving the mystery. It's supposed to be about finding out who committed these crimes, but this show, I think, is about something much more deeper. I think, you know, I think sometimes mystery shows or crime shows, they can, I think we sometimes call them guilty pleasure because they can be empty. It can just be about the suspense. It can just be about finding out who committed the crime. And then you're done with it and you forget it, you know. Um, I think what's meatier about the show and more meaningful about it is that it's really about Camille and her ghosts and the things that haunt her and the things that she's been through. And it's about the people of this town and what do they have to hide and what's going on in this community and why are these girls disappearing? There's there's more going on to the show than, oh, who's the bad guy? Who's the murderer? And I like that too because the show doesn't focus on the murderer. Because that's what can happen in these shows when it's all about finding out who the bad guy is. Is that there can be this glorification of the killer, of the violent person. And instead, I think this show shifts it to the women. It shifts, it shifts the focus to the victims of this violence and focuses on the aftermath and what they have to live with after the murders of these girls. And I think that is really important, that it shifts the focus away from who did it, who did it, why did he do it, you know, let's focus on this bad guy and what he's like and blah, blah, blah. And instead it focuses on the victims, on the women, on their stories, on their trauma, on their lives, and in Camille's life in particular. And so that's another thing about the show that I really love. I like... Even when I watch my true crime shows, that's what I'm compelled by, is the stories of the people. I, I, I could care less about the murderer. I could care less about their life, you know. What it compels me the most is the people who are grieving, the people who are having to deal with this kind of violence and, and trying to survive it. And so the second episode is really about Natalie's funeral and the devastation of her family. And her mother stands up and gives a really powerful speech. And you get a sense of the impact of her death and and what it's done to her family. And I think the show also raises some interesting questions about journalism when it comes to reporting about crime that was something that I thought about because Camille is a reporter. She's a journalist. She's there to cover a story. How do you cover the story in an ethical, sensitive way? Um, you know, she goes into Natalie's room. She goes to the home of Natalie's family. You know, everybody has gathered there and people are talking and trying to comfort each other and she goes into Natalie's room and she's looking around. She wasn't invited into that space. She is really invading it. She, 
you know, what is this line between reporting a story and exploiting the story? And I'm not saying Camille is exploiting it, but I'm saying that she is doing things that are not necessarily respectful of the family. And I found myself thinking about that, of like, of the ethics, or maybe not the ethics, but just the optics, I guess, of Camille sitting there in the funeral. And instead of just sitting there and observing, she's taking notes. And Adora, like, hates it. She tries to take the pen away from her and and try to get her to stop because she hates that Camille is sitting there writing it down. Camille has to remain neutral. She has to remain, like, this objective observer of what's going on around her. Um, But I think it makes, for me, it made me think about myself as a consumer of these stories You know, when I watch true crime shows or listen to true crime podcasts or whatever, you know, or or read these stories online, what is my role in this as someone who is consuming these stories of people who may not want them written about? You know, this, this was their child. This was their family member. This was somebody they loved. And here is this sort of you know, sensationalist coverage of it. You know, you think of all the big famous uh, trials and, and things that have happened over the last few decades. That that was real people, you know, that, that lost someone they loved. And that so often gets lost in all of it. Like, like last year or maybe the year before, I got really obsessed with the JonBenet Ramsey case again. And I was watching all kinds of things about it. But of course, what came up over and over again was how Jean Benet gets lost in it. That here was this little girl, this six-year-old little girl. Um, I may not have the age exact. And nobody really talks about her. It's all about her death and who did it and this and that. And the victims do get lost in it or think of Lacey Peterson or... You know, any of these these people that you can name, um, Natalie Holloway, you know, different cases that have really, you know, these dead women, these dead girls that we become fixated on and obsessed with and um, how it, their lives just become content. Their lives just become something for people to consume and devour and then they're on to the next dead girl and the next and the next. Um, they get forgotten. We, Or people think that they know them or that they have some kind of ownership over them. So for me, that what Camille's doing, it made me uncomfortable. And it, it unsettled me. The way she was taking notes, the way she was invading the space of these families. She did it. I think I think in the first episode, she went and interviewed, um, I think, the father of Ann Nash, the, another girl who had been murdered. She went, you know, in his home and was talking to him and asking him questions. You know, this is a man, I mean, he might be a suspect, but, you know he's still a man grieving his daughter and she does the same thing in the second episode when she goes up to the father of Natalie Keene and she's interviewing him and asking him questions and you think about if you were in that 
position? Would you want a reporter asking you questions and and doing all of this and accusing you? So Camille is certainly not perfect. You know, she's not um she's not a saint or an angel by any means in this series. She's doing what she has to do to get her story. You know, the story that may help rehabilitate her career and may help her position at the paper. Um, so there's there's a naked ambition there to some extent as well. That she wants to write this story. She wants to do a good job. And these people are subjects for her. You know, these people are just a story for her to write about to a certain extent. But this is still her hometown. And I think she obviously feels some kind of personal connection to it. And and you feel that. And that's why he her boss sent her because he knew that he could she could tap into those personal details and that personal connection that she feels to wind gap and she could bring it alive in her writing but still i think it brings up issues of ethics when it comes to covering murders you know going into a family's home you know invading their lives and then writing about it for a paper you know, and, and how I think, I think that should make us uncomfortable. And if it doesn't, I think there's something wrong. I think we should be a little bit unsettled by it. But, um, so there's so much going on in this show. As I talk about it, it's sort of stunning. Everything that's going on. I don't know if I've covered every single thing. I feel like I have. Um, but for me, what stays with me is the way that the show interacts and engages with the past and with memory. And um, I, th- I think I started my thought, but I didn't finish it. I want to say this for a moment. There are things that cinema and television can do that other art forms cannot do. And I think memory and the past can be a really difficult thing because it's so visual. You know, I think that when we think about the past, it's in these flashbacks it's in these flashing images that come into our minds. Um, you know, if you go to a place and you remember being there when you were younger and you see that in your mind, that can be difficult to write. That can be difficult to put into words. But because of the visual medium of television and film, they can engage with flashbacks in a very different way and in a very compelling and resonant and vivid way and that's what the show does is that there are constant flashbacks there is this constant um presence of the past that it's it's always very real and tangible for Camille that it and especially in Wind Gap you know when she's in her childhood bedroom or she's in the home where she grew up she's in the home where she lived with her sister Marion um, the one that died. And so she can see it all so clearly in her mind. And that's what the series does is it takes you into her mind, into her memories, into her past, into all these things that created such a rupture and such, um, and such pain for her that, and it explains a lot of, I think, what she's doing you know, the, the cutting of herself, the, the drinking, you know, all of these things. And so the show does that through the flashbacks. 
And then, of course, we as an audience are left to wonder, well, are, are these puzzle pieces? Are we supposed to put these flashbacks together and, and, and create some kind of narrative or story with them? So there's a fragmented quality to the show as well. But the flashbacks are the most central thing for me because my own life mimics that. My own life mimics um, sort of these constant flashbacks of memory. You know, I was just thinking to the other day about my cat who died in 2016. And I had these flashbacks to her and, and these memories of her, of holding her, of feeling her fur, of hearing her purr. And so she's not here. I'm not holding her. She's not alive anymore. But those memories are alive within me. And they hurt me. They wound me. They bring tears to my eyes. You know, this cat that doesn't exist anymore. But I remember her. And and all of the, the senses that, that memory engages with. But it is so visual, you know. And that's what the show does, is that it brings all of that back for Camille. And we realize that this is a woman carrying so much trauma and so much um, pain and and anguish from her past and, and what she went through in her childhood and her teenage years, which is such a formative time for us as people. Um, I think it can really scar and wound us for the rest of our lives, that for the rest of our lives, we're trying to make sense of what happened to us when we were younger, you know, and we're never fully free of it because of memory, because of the flashbacks, because of the way, um, because of the way we carry all of it and how it's so alive within us. And the show does that. It's like, I, I, um, I described it in my journal. I think I was writing about the show in my diary. And I described the past as like this skin that we put on that, or that is on us that we cannot shed or that maybe is slipping on and off at times. It's like this slippage that happens with memory, you know, maybe you don't think of it all the time, but there's just this, this slippage that's always happening that we're slipping back into the past that but it's like the skin that we wear that we can never fully take off that we can never fully be free of we can never escape you know and that's what for me the show is about that that's what it is for me it just is and um Jean-Marc Vallée through his direction through the flashbacks is able to make that concrete, to make that tangible to us, that when Camille is in her home or when Camille is walking around Wind Gap, she's not just seeing the world as it is now. She's seeing the world as it was when she was there as as a child and when she was younger. She's seeing two worlds at once, that they overlap with each other, that they merge and fuse together to create a hybrid in a way that we are always living in this hybrid world that is the um that is the fusion of past and present 
We're never, we're never just in one or the other. We're always in the simultaneity, in the sim, in the simultaneous um, experience of both, you know, and they're always simultaneously happening with each other and engaging with each other and shaping us and molding us and um, impacting us in really profound ways, you know, that um, it's like this hybrid world that we live in of the past and the present that's, that's merged together and um, you can never extricate it. You can never extricate the past from your life. It just isn't that easy. You can never entangle these things. They're just inextricably linked together um, and fused together in so many ways. And, and that is where trauma lives. That's where grief lives. That's where loss lives. It's where sorrow and despair can live. It's where the darkness can live. Because not only do you have to go through that trauma, whatever you have gone through in your past, then you relive it. Then you think about it. Then you're haunted by it. And you're never fully free of it. You know, and maybe some people are. And I'm glad for them. But I am not. And Camille is not. And a lot of the characters in this series are not. That the past is always... um, It's just always clawing at them. That's what the past is doing. It's clawing at them. And and at times, eating them alive. You know? Just... Like you're just sinking into it, drowning in it, right? And that's, I think, what this show is exploring to a certain extent. And I just have not been able to stop thinking about it. And I've been telling everybody to watch it, especially online, um, on my different social media channels. You know, watch this show. I think it's doing something special and extraordinary and like haunting and like I can't get it out of my system right now like I really think about the show a lot and I think about Amy Adams's performance and and all of it so it's just it's extraordinary so I, I hope that you liked this episode um, and that you found some kind of value in it and me talking about the show and I'll definitely try to do, you know, some future recap episodes um, for you because I just, I don't think I'm going to be able to stop thinking about this show for a long time. So thanks so much for listening to this television edition of Her Ed and Films. Bye for now. <laughs>